0: Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace and for your mercy upon your people. We thank you for even the reminder through these wonderful songs of the reason for the season. And his name is Christ, our Savior and our King. We thank you for this opportunity that we have to open up your word. And we pray that you would be honored and glorified as we look at your holy scripture, your self-revelation, and that we would be people who would respond in the power and guidance of your Holy Spirit to the truth and obedience out of a heart of joy and gratitude for all that you've done for us. In and through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior we pray in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. We'll open your Bibles brethren to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11. And if you're able to stand with me for the reading of God's word please do so. Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11. This is God's authoritative, inspired, inerrant, infallible word. Amen? Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Well, as you know, we've been working through the book of Philippians, this wonderful letter, and we're in the middle of this mini-series that I've titled, Ingredients for Gospel Unity. And we're doing part two of a message that I started last week, titled, Look at Christ, here in chapter two, and our focus will be verses nine through eleven this morning. C.H. Spurgeon wrote this, Stoop, my brethren, If you wish to lead others, the way up is downward. To be great, you must be little. He is the greatest, who is nothing at all unto himself, but all for others. We've been seeing this in the book of Philippians, haven't we? That if we're going to preserve unity, you and I must cultivate selfless humility. That greatness in the kingdom of God consists of lowering ourselves as Christ did it as we saw in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. You know, this idea and this theme isn't original to Paul. In Mark chapter 10, a couple of Jesus' disciples at one point were seeking the place of prominence and discussing amongst themselves who amongst them was the greatest. And they even came to Jesus requesting to be great and be put in the places of prominence. And Jesus said this in Mark chapter 10, verse 42, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be all. For even the Son of Man, speaking of himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ set the model and the example of this, and he stated that, In that latter part of the quotation, Jesus, throughout the Gospels and even there, was teaching his disciples that the way of the kingdom is starkly different and the opposite than that of the way of the world. The way of the world is to exploit, to use others to gain advantage. Uh, It's selfish pride, stepping on others to achieve places of honor and prominence. But the way of the kingdom is to serve others, to lay our lives down for Christ and for others. The kingdom consists of selfless humility, and we've been learning about this here in this particular chapter. Paul has instructed this church, if you remember back in chapter 1, verse 27, in the first command or imperative of the letter of Philippians, chapter 1, verse 27, he says, you need to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, and that um, worthy walk consists of gospel unity. And then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, he says, the indispensable uh, character, uh, virtue, that you need to cultivate in your heart and life that's going to lead to gospel unity in your relationship with others is selfless humility. That was verses 2 through 4 of uh, chapter uh, 2. And then, in essence, in verse 5 and following, he says, you want to know the model of selfless humility? Then look at Jesus. And that's really verses 5 through 11, right? Look at Christ, he says. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who, though God of very God who possesses all things, who has all rights and position and privileges, who possesses everything, joyfully condescended to the lowest point, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich, spiritually speaking. What a great Savior. Our precious Lord Jesus set the, the model for us to emulate. And the importance of this, brethren, cannot be overemphasized. It's super important that we get this. The greatest antidote against pride and self-exalting centeredness is daily contemplation of the person and the work of Jesus. Amen? We cannot do without him and without being reminded of the fact that he is majestic and glorious and even how he, even though he possessed everything, he lowered himself as we read here in chapter 2 of Philippians. When we contemplate the beauty of Jesus, we're brought very low and we see ourselves rightly. We assess ourselves rightly. On the other hand, conversely, when we cease to reflect upon the cross of Jesus, then we can become hardened and grow cold in our love for God and our love toward other people around us. And so this is part two of a message I titled, Ingredients for Gospel Unity. Looking at Jesus, right, verses five through eight focused on the humiliation of Christ but, as we're going to see this morning, the humiliation of Christ is only half of the story of the glory of Christ. We don't behold a cross with a dead Savior on it, right? We behold a, a cross that is empty. A, we behold a cross that, where there is a risen, exalted Jesus who used to be there but is no longer there. And so we want to look at the second half of this. If last week was about the humiliation of Jesus and emulating his example, today we want to see the exaltation of Christ in verses 9 through 11. If you remember last week, by way of review, as you're looking at your notes, we said that we must emulate the example of Christ if we are going to foster gospel unity amongst us. And then we gave some meat to that first point, if you remember, by saying that we must adopt the mindset of Christ, that's all in your notes, And we must apply ourselves to the manner of Christ. You remember the manner of Christ, how Jesus humbled himself. And at his incarnation, two great action verbs by the Lord Jesus. He emptied himself and he humbled himself. The great truth that during his incarnation, for a time, the eternal Son of God humbled himself that he might purchase a people for himself, that he might redeem us out of darkness, brethren. For those of us who put our trust in Jesus and placed us in the kingdom of the, his marvelous light. a today we want to consider that if we're going to preserve gospel unity, then we must also continually exult in the exaltation of Christ. Write that down. We must exult in the exaltation of Christ. That's in verses 9 through 11. And notice how I worded that. It's exult. Not exalt, but exult. That is, that is rejoicing. We must glory in our Lord's exaltation. The cross of Christ was not the end of our Lord's redemptive work, but his entrance into even greater glory by virtue of what he accomplished during his incarnation, his victorious incarnation. And don't miss the key application from this text. We'll talk about this later a little bit more. Similarly, following after the pattern of our Lord Jesus. Our present carrying of our cross is not our end, but our entrance into greater glory as followers of Christ. Jesus said in Luke chapter 14 verse 11 that everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Everyone who humbles himself will be lifted up. And so the more that we grow in our right understanding of this and our appreciation of this wonderful truth, the more that you and I in the here and now will be driven to preserve gospel unity. Why is this so important for us? Because brethren, the more that we see the big picture of Christ's exaltation, the more that our disunity division pales in comparison to that wonderful reality of the exaltation of Christ and our future exaltation if we've trusted Jesus. This is the pertinence of this here. And so as we walk through verses 9 through 11, here are some some aspects of this wonderful exaltation so that we may marvel, so that we may apply ourselves to gospel unity. In your notes, write this down. Consider first the nature of his exaltation. Consider the nature of Christ's exaltation. Verse 9 begins with this, For this reason also. He's drawing an inference, isn't he, in verse 9, with these words, To verses 5 through 8, which speak of the humiliation of Christ. In other words, because Christ emptied himself, because Christ humbled himself, God now responds to his son's glorious act by the following action. And it is this He highly exalted Christ. You see that? God highly exalted Jesus. The eternal Son of God humbles himself in fulfillment of God's predetermined plan from before the foundation of the world and for the good of sinners, for the glory of his Father, for the good of sinners. And God now responds by rewarding his Son, by exalting his Son. Now, We can talk so much about exalting Christ and if you remember back during my installation service that evening the elders gave me an opportunity to talk a little bit about our vision for the church and all of that and from scripture I shared with you at the time that we want to be a church above anything else that exalts Jesus. Remember that? Who exalts makes much of Christ. We can talk so much about exalting Jesus but what does that mean? What what meat can we put to that? Well, the basic meaning of the word exalt is to lift up, to raise up, right? To make much of, we might say, to make much of something or someone. But then there's a little word here in, verse, in this verse, verse 9, a little word attached to the front of the word exalt, this little preposition which intensifies the action of God. And our English Bibles represent that little preposition by saying, God highly exalted him. You see that in the text? God highly exalted Christ. You might even translate this as God hyper-exalted Jesus. God um, super-exalted Christ. Beyond measure, that is. God highly exalted Jesus. He lifted him up to incomparable, immeasurable heights. Jesus, in other words, is is in a class all by himself. And this does not mean That prior to this lifting up of God the Father, of the Son of God, that Jesus wasn't exalted, He was indeed. He's always been God, deserving of of glory and majesty and all of that. We talked a little bit about this last week. But what it means is that by virtue of His coming to earth, by virtue of His completed, perfect life, His atoning substitutionary death, there's even more honor to be given to Jesus by virtue of His added, glorified humanity and His incarnation, what He accomplished in redemption. Glorious truth. Did you notice in verse 9 that further accentuating this exaltation is who it is who exalts jesus it's god the father god the father highly exalted christ his son you know many of us have seen how in sporting events the champion of that particular sport eventually gets invited to the uh, white house we've seen that right like the Super Bowl champion of that particular year, he gets invited to the White House to meet the president. And we know that this next year it's going to be the Seattle Seahawks. Everybody knows that. Wow, ye of little faith, right? <laughs> but we've seen that, right? The champion of that particular sport gets invited to the White House to meet the president, and the, uh, and the president honors that particular champion, I mean, he's no common, ordinary person. He's the most powerful man on the face of the planet, right? So there's an added sense of honor and respect shown to that team depending on who it is who is honoring them. Well, think about this. Here is the one giving Christ the highest place of honor, and it is none other than God the Father, the great judge of the highest of supreme courts. No one is greater than him. And he is the one who is exalting his own son and saying, I exalt you. I honor you. And people are to honor him as well. So God the Father exalts his son. Now what is involved in this exaltation? Sometimes we need to do a series on this. But the exaltation of Christ really involves his resurrection. It involves his ascension. It involves his glorification. It involves his coronation as king. All of those things are involved in the exaltation of Jesus, the eternal Son of God. His resurrection, his ascension, his glorification, and his coronation as king. Psalm chapter 2, verse 6 says that God, uh, God is declaring, but as for me, I have installed my king, speaking of the eternal Son of God, speaking of Jesus, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. So God himself coronates Christ to the highest of places of honor as his king. All of these are involved in Christ's exaltation. But what else is involved in this exaltation? I think our text speaks to this. God gave Christ universal lordship. I want you to see this. He gives Christ universal lordship. Look at the text in verse 9. It says that he, God the Father, bestowed, and that word bestowed there is the verb form of our word for grace, charis, right? He graciously bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Boy, we understand the significance of a name, don't we? Even on the human level, one's name is is more than just a mere title. It's more than just something that distinguishes you from someone else. Your name as a human being represents who you are, your character, your reputation, your dignity, if you will even in connection to your family association. Your name means something in connection to your family. This was even more the case, the significance of a name in biblical times. Someone's name represented their their character, their reputation, their dignity, their work, even their power and position, given their family name and their influence in the light of who their family name was. Names were important in Bible times. Well, brethren, up the ante when we speak of God's name. His name represents who he is, his glory, his majesty. It represents his character, his divine attributes that are incomparable, his dignity and his honor, and on and on and on and on the list goes. His name is super important. And so, since his name is important, the question is this. What unique name did God the Father give... To Jesus, the name that is, as our text says, above every other name on earth. What name is Paul referring to? Some people think that this is, that this, as I I did when the Lord saved me, that this is the name Jesus. That's That's Jesus. And at first glance, right, as our English text reads, this seems reasonable, but most likely this isn't the case for at least three reasons. For one thing, the name Jesus was not a new name given to Jesus at his exaltation, was it? When was it given to him? During his birth. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21 says about Mary, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name, what? Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So he already had the name Jesus before his exaltation. Second, the name Jesus was not unique to Jesus. Even uh, before, during, or after Jesus' lifetime or incarnation on earth. This was a common known name. There were others before, during, and after Jesus who actually had that name as well. And then finally, third, the simple name of Jesus is not a name that would demand for people to bow to him. Remember how they spoke about Jesus? This is Jesus of Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth, right? They wouldn't worship Jesus' his name and understanding him to be the, the guy that they knew about, that he was common, ordinary amongst them. We know this guy. This is none other than Jesus of Nazareth. And you know, even now in the present day, right? When was the last time that you watched a movie where they weren't using Jesus as a cuss word in that movie? So hardly a name for people to worship, the name above every other name. I think it's for these and other reasons that Jesus is not the name that Paul is talking about or referring to here. So what is it? What is the name which is above every name granted to him graciously by God the Father? I think it's the name Lord. Lord. Look at verse 11. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen. By virtue of his glorious humiliation, God the Father gave Jesus the unique and unrivaled name of, of Lord. Kurios in the Greek. Lord kurios in the new testament is is equivalent to the old testament name for god the name yahweh that is that is translated capital l o r d all caps lord throughout the old testament in the old testament the name yahweh lord with all capital letters was a unique name for the one and only god the one who deserved all praise and honor to whom all universal worship was to be given Yahweh was the the tetragrammaton, the unpronounceable name of God, the most holy of names. It signified God's eternal existence and eternal presence. Yahweh, Lord, with all caps, eternal existence, eternal presence, that he is self-sufficient, that he needs no one, he's dependent on no one, that he is eternal and everlasting. He's always been from before the foundation of the world and will ever, forever will be after that. God says in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, that is my name, I will not give my glory to another. See, it's his unique name by which he was known as the only one to whom worship was to be given, to whom glory belonged. It is this name of Lord that I think Paul is referring to. And again, it isn't that, that Jesus wasn't Lord before his exaltation. But at his exaltation, the Father vindicated Jesus' claims by raising him from the dead and declaring him Lord, right? Proving that he was God as he says he was and is God. So God the Father has given Christ universal lordship by virtue of that name, Lord. And I've told you before, um, I think it was this summer, I made this statement, that at this stage of redemptive history, God the Father is glorified when his son is exalted in the power of the Holy Spirit. And you might add, by the guidance and instruction of God's holy word. God the Father is is glorified when his son Jesus is exalted in the power of the Holy Spirit. When the church makes much of Jesus, the son of God, right, then God is glorified. And that's precisely why the Holy Spirit came. The Holy Spirit came, brethren, to exalt Christ in the hearts of spiritually dead sinners and to continue to exalt Christ in the hearts of sinners saved by grace like us. God is glorified when we exalt Christ. In fact, Christ's exaltation is prominent in the preaching of the early church. I want you to go with me to Acts chapter 2, okay? Back a few pages, keep your finger in Philippians chapter 2, but go to Acts chapter 2 and verse 33 show you this, how prominent the exaltation of Jesus was in the preaching of the early church. Acts 2.33, Peter preaching here, therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but David himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, look at this, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God, speaking specifically of God the Father there, God has made Him, the Son of God, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You see that? Christ's universal lordship and exaltation was prominent in the early church. And we could go to other texts. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. In this prayer of Paul, he's praying for spiritual enlightenment, and he gets to chapter 1 of Ephesians, verse 21, and he says that God the Father has placed the exalted Christ, ready, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head, that word head is the idea of sovereign Lord. Sovereign ruler. God has given Jesus that place of sovereign Lord over all things to the church, right? Which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so God exalted his son, right? Made him Lord, supreme ruler, sovereign over the the entire universe, including the church. You don't have to turn there to the Great Commission passage in Matthew 28, but Jesus speaks of his lordship there. We often miss that. We think, uh, the Great Commission, go make disciples. And we should. That's the main verb. But right before that, Jesus says, all authority, right? Authority is connected to the lordship of Jesus. If he's Lord, he's got all authority. If he's got all authority, he's Lord. All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. Therefore, go make disciples. Authority, lordship, go hand in hand. Christ is Lord. Christ is to be exalted. He is, he is king. And brethren, in the midst of everything that you see in our society right now, all of the darkness and all of the pain and all of the suffering and all of the violence and all of the hatred, don't ever forget that. That though Jesus' present reign may be invisible, one day his reign will be a physical, visible reality. He will reign in a new heavens and a new earth, and we will be with him if we've trusted in him. Amen? What a beautiful truth. Again, this is why the Holy Spirit primarily came to exalt Christ in the hearts of spiritually dead sinners. It follows then, that if this is the central mission of the Holy Spirit, to exalt the Son in the hearts of spiritually dead sinners, brethren, how do we know then, when we are a Spirit-led, Spirit-filled person? How do we know where we are growing in an atmosphere, in a culture in our church, of being Spirit-filled believers, where we are being Spirit-empowered believers? You know how we'll know? When Christ is number one in our lives when we continue to grow as a church in emphasizing and elevating the person and the work of Jesus, and that is perspective shaping, isn't it? The more that you and I as believers are spirit-filled, spirit-empowered, the more that as a church we have a culture, a growing culture of being spirit-filled and being spirit-empowered, we will see that first and foremost in the fact that we are exalting Jesus and making much of Him. That's how we'll know because that is the central mission, first and foremost, of the Holy Spirit. He seeks to exalt Christ. It's why Jesus said concerning the Holy Spirit, just write this text down, John 14, 26. John 14, 26. He says, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He, the Holy Spirit, will teach you all things and bring to your ready remembrance all that I said to you. The Spirit doesn't come saying, I have a different message. He comes and reminds believers of what Jesus said. And Jesus says that is the central, the, the central mission of the Holy Spirit. So if you have a revelation and a vision outside of what the Word of God says, listen, you didn't have a vision or revelation. Because the Holy Spirit points to Christ, not to experiences. He points to objective truth outside of yourself. He points to the Scripture. John chapter 16, verse 13. But when He, the Spirit of Truth with a capital T, comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. Ready for this? He will glorify me, says Jesus. The Spirit will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. Couldn't it be more clear? The Holy Spirit's central purpose and mission is to make much of the Son, for he is worthy of this honor. The Father has declared it to be so. And this is what glorifies God the Father, that we exalt Christ by giving him universal lordship. Now, brethren, let me ask you this. If this is the case, that Christ is exalted and that God has granted him universal lordship, is this your understanding of who Jesus is? Is this your conception of who Jesus is? That he's sovereign Lord? That God has given him the highest place of prominence, honor, and prestige? Is this your understanding of who Jesus is? Why is this important? Because your view of Christ will determine your thinking patterns. Your view of Christ will determine how you live, your priorities, your decision-making. Because your question will always be, how does this exalt Christ? How does this make much of Jesus? Right? What job do I pursue? Well, what's going to exalt Christ more? How do I exalt Christ in this relationship? Am I walking with in peace with others? In my marriage, in my parenting, kids with your parents, in the context of the local church, how does our relationship exalt Christ? That's always going to be your question. Your view of Jesus will determine your outlook, how you speak of him to others. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. How you witness to others about him if you understand him to be Lord of the universe. So your picture of Christ is, is, a, is critical right? And what the scriptures give us here is a far cry from the wimpy Jesus of our popular culture, brethren, the therapeutic Jesus, right? We've heard of him. You know, we visit him whenever we're, we're in trouble occasionally, right? Whenever we have a spiritual headache, we come to him for a, a spiritual aspirin or a spiritual Tylenol, but he doesn't have any, any say in your life, how you live. That's the therapeutic Jesus. There's the utilitarian Jesus, you just use him and get, to get what you want. He's not Lord of your life, right? You only come to him to, if he does what you want him to do, you know, if he gives me this and he gives me that, well, I'll take that Jesus. That Jesus is a good Jesus. That's the utilitarian view of Jesus. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. That's an inaccurate, distorted, even satanic picture of Jesus. And here's another thing. So many of us fall in love during this time, during Christmas time, during holiday season with the, with the incarnate Christ, and we've talked about the glory of the incarnation, yes? Last week, verses 5 through 8, we fall in love with, with the incarnation of Jesus and, oh, look at the baby, and that makes you so cute, cute, cute. you know, we, we, we fall in love with the baby, and there is glory in the incarnation, and we've talked about that, and the scriptures speak of Jesus adding hum, a human nature to his already divine nature. But remember, brethren, to have a complete view of Jesus, right? Have a complete view of him. Remind yourself daily of this, that at his first coming, yes, Jesus enveloped himself in humanity, but at his second coming, he comes in the fullness of his glory. Amen? And that's our comfort and our encouragement and our hope. That yes, at his first coming, Christ came as a lamb to be slain, spotless and blameless, but at his second coming, he comes as a, as a lion to slay those and shed the blood of those who rejected him. That's a complete view of Jesus. It's not just the incarnate Christ. It's the exalted Christ. He's Lord. He's sovereign, supreme ruler of the universe. This is a complete picture of the Jesus of the Bible. You must take him for all that he is. Not just pick and choose who you want him to be, Right? And so concerning the nature of his exaltation, Christ has been given universal lordship, right? Secondly, consider also the result of his exaltation, the result of his exaltation. Since God himself has exalted Christ his son, what should and must this result in, right? The text tells us that this exaltation must and will result in universal worship, His universal lordship given to him by God must result in universal worship, right? One day future. Look at verse 10. It says, so that every, universally and without exception, every knee will, this is a future tense verb, this is where all history is headed, brethren. I just taught a worldview class with some of our college and career students in between services, and we were talking about this. The end, right? Your worldview determines even uh, what your, your conception of the end will be. Well, we're told here, Here's where everything is headed. Every knee will bow. And that bowing is a posture of submission. Of subjects paying homage to a conquering king. Of granting reverence and honor to a a conquering victorious, exalted king. And note, none will be exempt. Verse 10 of those who are in heaven, most likely those are angels and the redeemed spirits of those who are in heaven. All you got to do is just go to Revelation 4 to get a glimpse of this heavenly scene of those who are in heaven and on earth, most likely referring to all those who are on earth during this time when this takes place, the culmination of all things, and then under the earth, most likely those who have descended into, into Hades Speaking of the lost souls of those who have rejected Christ, past, present, and future, whenever this whole thing culminates. Every single knee, without exception, universally will bow. His point is that Christ's reign will be comprehensive, absolute, universal. Everyone will worship Jesus at the culmination of all things. And listen, brethren, part and parcel of that universal worship will involve a universal confession. Look at verse 11. And that every tongue will confess. This means to to agree with or to acknowledge. That's the idea of confessing, acknowledging or agreeing with what? That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I love that. So universal worship will lead to universal, or universal lordship will lead to universal worship. And then this confession that is open and public, it's universal, it's without exception. Wow. Now go with me to Isaiah chapter 45, okay? Go with me there. Keep your fingers in Philippians chapter 2. And go with me to Isaiah chapter 45, because I want to show you the background of these words here. The words, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, Isaiah 45 Verse 23, which is also quoted by the way in Romans 14:11. And the context of Isaiah 45 is that of the suffering servant, of the future Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there the Lord declares this: Isaiah 45, 23: I have sworn by myself. The word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. There's our text. They will say of me, only in Yahweh are righteousness and strength. Men will come to him, and all who are angry at him will be put to shame. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. There's our Philippian text, brethren, right there. And that Isaiah quotation is another reason why, by the way, I believe that the name Paul is referring to is the name Lord, right? In the Old Testament, Yahweh. But the point is this, seven to 800 years before our Philippians text, Isaiah foretold of the Messiah's universal reign and that everyone would be put to shame. And Paul is simply referencing the same truth here in our text, that Christ will reign, the Messiah will reign supreme. And what will be the ultimate goal in all of this? Go back to Philippians chapter 2 and verse 11. It will be to the glory of God the Father. As I mentioned, according to God's will, when the Son is exalted, the Father is glorified. It pleases God when Jesus is made much of. Even while Jesus was on earth, he said that all, that all who honor the Son also honor the Father. John chapter 5 verse 23. So there's no contradiction there's no competition between members of the Godhead. One day God will be all in all as 1 Corinthians 15, 25 and following tell us. God would be all in all but the Father, Son and Spirit are one in essence, right? They are each equally God. So one day future the Father will be glorified when all will bow and confess the Son as Lord, as Supreme Ruler. I love that. To the glory of God the Father. Now listen. Since these things are true, and this is where everything is, is headed, and this is what God the Father has done in exalting His Son so that everyone, 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 without exception, is to worship Him. What are some practical implications for the here and now for us? And I got three for us. Primarily, there are many, but three. I think the first implication is this, of Christ's lordship, is that we must worship Him as the exalted Christ as well, Right? We must worship him as the exalted Christ. In fact, go with me to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. I love this Psalm. One of my favorites. Psalm 2. In verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their courts from us. So he's saying for this first scene, the world is rebelling against the rulership of God. He is, he is a burden to them. God's rulership is a burden to the world around us. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens is really concerned. Is that what it says, brethren? He who sits in the heavens is really scared. He who sits in the heavens is, oh no, what's going to happen? What's plan B for me? Is that what he says? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them, and then he will speak to them in his anger, verse 5, and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. This is God the Father speaking He's already done this. From before the foundation of the world, He's done this. Verse 7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That is, this is a, verses 7 and following, brethren, is an intratenitarian conversation between the father and the son, where, he, uh, where the father says to him, you are my son, to Jesus, right, who we know now to be Jesus. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter the them like earthenware you see that does this sound to you guys like a concerned god who's really afraid Uh -uh. he's sovereign isn't he he has a plan of attack it's plan a and he's going to execute plan a and jesus has already delivered the final the death blow for that to happen and then verse 10 so what so what now therefore o kings show discernment open your eyes guys rulers napoleon Trump, right? Biden, all of you rulers of the world, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Boy, that's pretty definitive, isn't it? He says, you better get your act together because we this is already a done deal. I'm ruler. I have my king and I've installed him upon Zion. Verse 12, do homage to the son. Literally, brethren, kiss the son. Kiss the Son, that he not become angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. You see that? There's a so what? Since God has already exalted his Son, then people, all people must worship Christ in the here and now, in anticipation of that universal uh, rulership. And the final death blow of Christ... Of course, we know that, that we worship Christ in our corporate gatherings. We know that, right? We call our Sunday morning gatherings corporate worship. But brethren, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 tells us that in light of the gospel, as believers, all of life is spiritual worship. All of life is to be lived in adoration of our great Savior. Those are the implications of his rulership. All my life is worship. Privately, I want to worship Christ and exalt him. Publicly, I want to do the same thing. That's for us as believers, but for us who are non-believers, for those of you here who have not committed your life to, to Jesus, if this is you, then listen to me. You too must worship Christ. He is Lord. We don't make him Lord. He is Lord. The issue is do you acknowledge him as Lord? And listen to me. Either you choose to now humble yourself and worship him, or one day you will be brought low. And you will be humbled. See verse 12? Do homage to the Son. Literally kiss the Son, which implies submission and worship and, and adoration out of a heart of love, right? Kiss the Son that He not become angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath well, it may soon be kindled. How blessed, however, all those who, who take refuge in Him. You hear that? Either you can humble yourself, repent and believe in the Gospel, put your confident trust in Jesus, and be blessed, or you will be humbled you will be brought low and experience the full intent of God's wrath because of your sins but listen to me Christ took upon himself the fullness of the father's wrath if you will embrace it and appropriate it to your own life and place your confident trust in Christ and you can't claim ignorance especially after this sermon you can't claim ignorance Acts 17:30 Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now, present tense, declaring to all people everywhere that they should repent, it says. To repent is to to have a change of mind about your sin, which leads to a change of lifestyle. That's repentance. To think differently about your sin. To see your sin so that you might savor the Savior. Turn from your sins. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. Ready for this? Through a man with a capital M whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. What man is that, you think? Christ. The exalted one. So salvation comes by confessing him as Lord and bowing to him as king and as boss of your life. What he says goes. Romans 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, ready, you will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from your sins and from the punishment that your sin deserves, which is God's wrath at the judgment day. You can be saved from the wrath of God. Forgiven of your sins. reconciled to God. Acknowledge Christ for who He is and live accordingly. For him, And if you do so, Psalm 2 says, how blessed are those who put their trust in him. Who transfer trust from yourself and your works and your church going and your uh, false perception of, the, of, of being a good person. You transfer trust from yourself and transfer that trust to Jesus alone. And Christ will give you his righteousness. The objective righteousness of Jesus outside of yourself apart from anything that you can do trust Christ. And so this text has implications for all of us that we worship Christ. If God the Father, the greatest in the universe, has exalted his Son, we all must worship him. Amen? And that begins by giving your life to Christ. But believers, right? What does it mean to exalt Jesus? To exalt Jesus means that you, in your marriage, you're loving your husband, you're loving your wife. That exalts Christ. That's how we worship Jesus. Right? That in our parenting, we're raising our kids up in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. Men, that exalts Christ when you're a spiritual leader of your home. Kids, when you obey and honor your parents and you love them and you follow through with what you say you're going to do, that exalts Christ in your life. When we are working wholeheartedly as unto the Lord in our secular environments, that exalts Christ when we are reconciling with one another in relationships, as we're going to say in a few minutes, that exalts Christ. See, all of life is worship. All of life is about lifting Jesus up. Amen? And so this text has implications for all of us in our worship. It also has implications, secondly, for our witness, for our witness, for our evangelism. We are all, brethren, missionaries, and I want you to especially remember that during the holiday season, that you and I are missionaries. Shouldn't just think of the supported missionaries on an international context that uh, EBC supports as those are the missionaries and we're just the people here in America. No, no, no. We are missionaries here as believers in America. Amen? Called to share Christ with others. And so, as a missionary, one implication of the Lordship of Christ is this. The next time that you are sharing Christ with someone, be careful. Be careful of the type of Jesus that you are portraying to people that you don't domesticate Jesus or diminishing Jesus by making him him, him out to be less than he is. Preach the Jesus of the Bible. Share the Jesus of the Bible, an accurate picture of Christ. And so with God's compassion and the grace that he gives you, find the courage to tell that lost soul or person, listen, I love you. I wouldn't want to lose your, your friendship. But what you need to know in love, I'm telling you this, is that either you bow down to Christ now by faith, or one day in judgment you will bow in shame and terror before him. One way or the other you will bow. How you do that, brother and sister, should be done in love and compassion and mercy because if you and I wouldn't have had people telling us similar message, we wouldn't be here, right? We're sinners saved by grace. But you need to speak the truth. Oftentimes, we're so afraid of telling people the truth. Remember, there won't be be universal salvation, but there will be universal confession of Jesus as Lord, and we must remind people of that, that if they don't repent, they too will perish. So remind them of the consequences of them rejecting the free offer of salvation by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, Remind them of the consequences of this, that there's a real hell, that there's a real physical place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, where they will go eternally separated from their creator, but that they don't have to go there, right? But remind them of the consequences. Remind them that Jesus is Lord, as I said that they don't make Him Lord, that He is Lord, and the question is, will they confess Him? Will they acknowledge Him as Lord and bow the knee to Him now or do so later in judgment? They will one day do that. Lovingly plead. 2 Corinthians 6.2, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation in light of the exalted Christ returning someday. Do so with compassion, but summon them to settle things with God. For one day, all will do so either joyfully or by force. But it doesn't need to be the latter, right? All those who trust in Christ will be blessed. Again, Psalm 2, that last wonderful verse. Finally, for the main point of our text, I think, this has implications, brethren, for our gospel unity amongst one another. The fact that that God has made Jesus Lord and exalted him, one of the implications of that is that we need to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, right? As a church, as individuals in our relationships. Listen, in light of Christ's selfless humility and then his universal and comprehensive reign, think about how small and petty our differences and grievances toward one another really are. You know what I'm saying? Think about that in your marriage, in your parenting, in your brotherhood or sisterhood with others in the body of Christ. Think about how petty we can be with our differences and how often we just hold on to grudges, don't we? And grievances. This right here reminds me of the big picture and where everything is headed. And it informs and shapes now my relationships with other people, right? Knowing that this rain is coming has implications for how we resolve matters in the here and now. Brethren, genuine, heartfelt gospel unity is the result of seeing Jesus as he is. Did you hear that? Genuine, heartfelt gospel unity is the result of seeing Jesus as he is, of emulating his example of selfless humility, of exulting in his glorious exaltation. That's the big picture for us. That's Paul's point. Verses 5 through 11, you recognize in the context of Philippians 2, is actually a parenthetical statement. It's a parenthetical text. What a parenthesis, amen? It's like Mount Rainier of parenthetical statements. You know what I'm saying? It's a parenthetical statement, however, to say, look, you guys need to walk in gospel unity, right? Foster selfless humility. Let's look at the Mount Rainier of examples, Christ. His humiliation, His exaltation. And therefore, in the light of that, walk in a manner worthy of God's calling. Walk in gospel unity together. It's not about the here and now, brethren. It's about the then and there, right? But in the here and now, in light of the then and there, we want to walk in gospel unity together. There's this beautiful Dutch hymn which speaks of that future reign and of our unified worship together. And I just wanted to read one section of this for you guys. It's beautiful. It goes something like this. Quote, One day, all creation shall bow to the Lord. Even now, among the angels, his name is adored. May we, plural, at his coming, with glorified throng, stand singing his praises in heaven's great song. Jesus, Jesus, Savior, adored of all men and angels, forever the curios, the Lord. End quote. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for the reminder of the big picture these last couple of weeks especially of the fact that Lord, there's something bigger and greater happening amongst us and even in the future, we anticipate the the final blow and the culmination of all things as our great king and ruler returns, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the reason for the season. Father, help us to live in the light of his exaltation. Help us to be humbled by his humiliation and that we might see the pertinence of that for the way that we live in the home, the way that we live in our neighborhoods, the way that we function in the church in our relationships, in the way that we reconcile with one another, in the way that we seek peace with one another in the light of the great peacemaker with a capital P, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.